0: All right, folks. Welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Tonight we have a special guest. We have Mark Katuza. He's a New York Times bestseller, a contrarian investor, and he specializes in gold, uranium, and rare earth metals, as well as other stuff. And he's a seriously smart guy. He's also going to talk to us about some carbon credits, and he recently wrote this fantastic book that we were lucky enough to read. It's called The Rise of America, which will be available August 7th on Amazon, I believe. So, Maren, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. We really appreciate it. And so I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about how did you get started in rare earth metals? So commodities, I'll be honest with you, is something I am not so familiar with. So maybe you could tell us a little bit how you got started.
2: Yeah, sure. So... Being born and raised in Vancouver, Canada, it's the epicenter for finance. And it's actually not what I went to school for. My background's mathematics. And I basically met a president of a tungsten company, did a bunch of the math and calculation work for him. thought it was an interesting perspective and I jumped deep into tungsten. So that's the first commodity I got into. And that's where I established my name in the finance side of things. From there, got into the rare earths and uraniums, get to meet some really smart people. And you just build it up from there. So it was not something I went to university for. It's not something I ever thought I would be doing. And here I am 20 years. Well, that's
0: cool. So have you become a geologist specialist? At the Do you understand all the
2: I took geology in college and it fascinated me. So is it it related at all? I married a geologist. um, (laughs) In my day, to keep my scholarship, you would take uh, what we used to call birdie courses. And between my quantum mechanics and organic chem, I needed something to boost my average up. So I took geology. So I took geology throughout all the years because it was fun and it was easy and and I enjoyed it. And interestingly enough, the head of the department of geology at, at UBC was my prof. He was also my wife's prof. I convinced them to come work for me for many years Talk about the pupil becoming the boss later on geology is something i don't pride myself on my skills but what i do is go get the best geologist for the type of project i'm looking at in the world so you build a network a rolodex of the best engineers for specific projects and the best geologists for specific projects and um, think of it as if you need heart surgery get the best heart surgeon if you need to have Uh, checkup on cancer, get the best cancer checkup. So that's my strategy. And and my strength is on the finance side of things. So between getting the best engineers and geos to look at a project, and then when you go through permitting and the environmental aspects, get the best lawyers to look at the things. And I'm not too bad at what I do either. So you mix them all together and you hopefully come to a successful outcome.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. So how long does a project
2: like that take generally?
0: It sounds like that's quite involved
2: the first copper mine that i was involved in building from start to production took five years and now it's been producing for about a decade to build a mine if you can do it in five years you're in the top five percent of builders building mines generally takes anywhere between 10 and 30 years from its life cycle from from discovery to actual production building a mine's pretty rare yeah that sounds like it that's crazy
1: is that pretty consistent between all sorts of different kinds of metals or is that specific to copper?
2: No, I would say copper is probably easier. As you get more niche, I would say uranium mine is probably the hardest mine to permit. And that's because of the NIMBY crowd and it would take you anywhere. I'll look at some of the most recent producers in North America. It's taken over 15 years to permit and build and the costs and the economics frankly, aren't there right now for uranium to build. On the gold side, there's one that my subscribers and I had a big score on. It's going into production now. My subscribers have only seen the last 12 months of wins, but it was owned by a previous company when we did not recommend it. And they took 10 years to permit that. So by the time it goes into production, that would be a 12-year. But I would say on average, it takes about 10 years uh, across the commodity board.
1: I guess as you look across the various commodities and metals today, is there one that stands out that's particularly exciting, whether for macroeconomic factors, supply demand balance, anything like that?
2: I like cheap. I focus everything on value. I really like gold here because the gold producers are trading at a discount to their NAV at $1,500 gold and gold's currently at 1800 So I do like the gold producers. I think carbon credits are the best commodity on the planet right now for... Mispricing uh, the model of where they're trading and and, and how. There's just so few people. It's Bitcoin in 2011. Like nobody has an idea what's going on there. And imagine if. Bitcoin in 2011, but you expected 10 times the amount of money to go into Bitcoin. That's where we're going with the carbon credits. So I love gold. I love carbon credits. I like things that you don't have a lot of competition, so you can buy things cheap. Nice. So how do you invest in something like uranium and gold? So... Very differently between the different commodities. Uh, I don't like taking exploration risks. Now, just think of this: if you look at uh, one in three thousand exploration projects ever becomes a viable economic deposit, but even if you get to that one to three thousand odds, do you get it permitted? And what time frame or window do you get it permitted? Is it during a time of strong commodity prices or weak commodity prices? And, and what is your cost of capital to build that? So there are all these factors come in, even if you are successful. Uh, so for gold, I like to buy undervalued existing producers in safe jurisdictions. I got this whole positive swap line, negative swap line concept. I just won't go to negative swap lines for, for gold or copper or uranium. And then for the uranium side, I don't want to be going to risky jurisdictions with no infrastructure that need $80 uranium. I think North America, specifically Athabasca Basin, which is in Saskatchewan and Canada and Texas and Wyoming are the places to be in the US. And what we did in uranium a few years ago with our subscribers is very simple. It's exactly what I'm doing in gold right now, by built, permitted assets that are trading at a discount to nav. And we got four or five hundred percent gains doing that. You sell and take a free ride and let the rest ride. So am I super bullish on uranium? Eh, it's all free for me now. So I don't really care. And for my subscribers, I like free. I like cheap. That's the way you build real wealth. Am I gonna go fund a geologist with a box of crayons with an idea in the middle of the Niger Basin in Niger and the Arlit basin? Not a chance
0: so it sounds like you're a warren buffett guy but in commodities with the rare metals
2: yeah like rare earths, I haven't done anything in a few years at one point a friend and i we own the the largest actual physical holdings of two different physical rare earth metals made a lot of money sold it so right now i don't hold anything in rares interesting so how
0: does how do retail investors take advantage of some of these ideas of gold or uranium or anything like that?
2: I guess a retail guy, it's never been easier than it is now. You can go on the internet and Google people, YouTube. When I started out, there was no YouTube. There was no, (laughs) you had to actually go to these conferences and meet people. Everything's now online. Ironically, because it's never been easier, maybe it's more difficult because there's maybe an overabundance of information at the fingertip. I'm not sure. I, I guess it's hard for me to answer that question because I know the CEOs of these big companies. And I just phone them up, meet with them and do my thing. Like for example, tomorrow I'm flying to go check out a project underground that no one's been to before. So I'll be the first outside of the company to check out the underground veins and see what's going on. From a retail perspective, if I was a teacher or a businessman and I was trying to get it, I would start with the low-hanging fruit. Look at what management's cost base is. If they're in at $5 and the stock's trading at $20, well, their cost of capital is four times lower than yours if you're going to buy in the market at 20 If management's cost base is at 5 bucks and they own 20% of the company and you could buy it at the same price, that sounds like a pretty interesting start. Then you start looking at where are the assets and is it a development? Is it exploration? Is it production? There, there's not one answer to all of that. It's more, what is your risk tolerance? What is your timeframe? There is this misconception though that I've been writing about and I talk about it in my book that you need to take big risks. It used to be buy a junior that is going to look for gold. And when they find the gold, you're going to make a lot of money. If you look at the math on that, the actual data says that's not true. You can make way more money with a producing de-risked asset that's trading at a discount to NAV than you can on some little junior. It's about the flow of capital because 30 years ago, when that concept was true, start early stage, high risk for high reward. You had a lot of money flowing into those juniors, but now with the passive management's and ETFs, they don't buy those juniors anymore. They're, the the capital's flowing to deep value, discounted cash flow production. Do you have
1: any thoughts on why the? I guess we could start with the gold. But the gold miners, they're trading at a discount to NAV that you said, like gold at 1500 Do you think there's reasons why? And are there times where you see a commodity at a discount to NAV and maybe you know, like a, a company associated with a commodity, and maybe there are times where they should trade to a discount because of some sort of secular factor?
2: Let's take gold you mentioned as an example. So this time last year, well, September of last year, so 11 months ago. I put a free ride, it's called the Katusa Free Ride on our gold positions because they were trading 1.2, 1.3 times NAV. And I said, look, it's these companies are being priced in as 20% growth because if something's 1.0, it's being valued at NAV for net asset value. And I said, look, it's trading between 1.2, 1.3. Some of the bigger companies are trading at 2.0 point times NAV. And I said, you know what? I'm going to take all my money off the table here and get all your principal back a year later last month. So now 10 months from that point, I put an alert going, Hey, I'm loading up now because these same stocks, which are advanced are trading at 0.5 nav at 1500, even though gold's at 1800. So resources are very cyclic, and it's not a secular thing. It's just with the interest rates, the bond market, it's a risk off market and the gold sold off. And I don't know if it'll be a year or two years or three years, it will come back. It always does. And when the money flows in, when it starts getting back to 1.2 times nav, you sell and you do it again. And I've done this for two decades now.
1: I guess there's a kind of big narrative that Bitcoin is the hedge for currency devaluation. And so the reason why it's up is because the currency is being devalued. But you mentioned risk on, risk off. Is it, it probably seems like maybe the reason gold hasn't followed Bitcoin is because it's not really a currency devaluation play as it is maybe like a risk on versus risk off. And, and it's very risk on because like you said, interest rates are lower.
2: Gold is a store of value. When you talk about the interest rates, it's about most who hold physical gold have to pay a storage fee. So it's about that, that R between what is the real rate versus your storage rate. And whereas with crypto, you don't pay a storage fee. So that's the one advantage crypto has over the uh, the gold market. I have money in both. I have a lot more money in the gold. I, I think gold has a 3000 year track record. Bitcoin has a decade. And I think you there's many more evolutions and ups and downs in the crypto market. A lot of the people in the crypto market believe in this S2FX model. I've proven that that math because of my background, I go, that model is mathematically wrong. I think a lot of people will figure out things in the cryptos. A lot of people haven't paid tax in their crypto market. That's going to have to come hit, leverage, all sorts of things, but there's also going to be more adoption. So there's a give and take and a growth in the market. I think when you look at Gold from a gold supply and demand market, the low-hanging fruit in the gold market, it's already happened. You look at, for 100 years, there's been about 2% growth rate in the gold. But at that same time, the cost to extract that, the high-grade, shallow mines have been all produced. So they're going deeper, and they're going into areas with a much riskier political regime. On top of that, you're going to see more nationalization. Because gold is money from a government perspective. If you're somewhere in, let's use Turkey as an example, that gold, you can sell in an international standard to, to backstop your government finances. And if it's been financed and developed by a foreign company, even better, it's easier to nationalize it. So you're, it's going to be harder and harder to produce gold and it's costing more money. The grades are decreasing. And they're not finding the big deposits anymore. I think it's a great place to be. But am I going to go build a mine in the middle of, say, Bolivia? No. Am I going to go to certain parts of South America or Africa? Not a chance. Because the infrastructure, the permitting process is just not there. But will I go to certain parts of the U.S. where an asset's trading at 0.5 NAV? Damn right, I am. So, uh You'd mentioned something
0: a bit ago, and you talked about this in the book as well, swap lines. Could you give a a brief
2: explanation or just an explanation of what that is to people? Sure. So a swap line is a direct line from the U.S. Fed to the central bank of their true allies. For example, Japan has a swap line. Canada has a swap line. Australia has a swap line. Brazil has a swap line. The EU has a swap line. And these are other countries that need US dollars in their system. And then the government of Canada, Mexico has a swap line. Then the US government or the Fed, sorry, charges different interest rates, whether it's seven days or the the other timeframes, three months, uh, 90 days, sorry. And the rate they charge Japan will be different than the rate they charge Mexico. And it shows the purpose of them is to help their true allies to alleviate their dollar shortages. And in 2000 and in March of 2020, we saw the swap line drawdowns explode. And that's only going to continue whenever there is market chaos like what we saw in in early 2020. Then there's the negative swap line. Those are countries that don't have access to U.S. dollars from the Fed. Think of it as a line of credit from the government. A country like India uh, Prime Minister Modi openly stated he's got swap line envy. I think India is probably the next country to get a swap line. But to do that, you got to be a true ally of the government of the US. You're not going to get a swap line without being an ally. Do I see Iran or China getting swap lines anytime soon? Not a chance. Russia? No. Turkey? No. So the point I'm making with the swap lines is, would a government bite the hand that feeds it, for example, let's say, nationalize a gold mine or a copper mine or or, or by a big American company that is also getting swap line support or US dollar relief from the US Fed? No, they're not going to do that. But would someone like Russia or Turkey or a non-swap line do it? It's going to be a hell of a lot easier for them to do it because they're not biting the hand that feeds them because the hand doesn't feed them.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So I guess, how does that play into, in the book, you are extremely bullish on the United States. And you talk a lot about how you think the golden age is still to come.
2: Can you talk through that a little bit? Sure. Like in the book, I talk about, let's look at the demographics. Why did China go from the one child policy now to three? Because their demographics are awful. Okay, Their coming population issue is not looking good for them. They're looking at what Japan is going through now. Number one. Number two, where do, let's just step, take a step back. Where do the rich of the world send their kids to school? Are the Americans, are the rich Americans sending their kids to Beijing University or are the rich Chinese sending their kids here? Send them Number here. Two. Let's take Elon Musk as an example. He blatantly had a public dispute with the SEC. And in most interpretations of what he did, you would think that he would have some serious repercussions. Now compare that to what Jack Ma did and ask yourself, who had the worst outcome on that? Within 12 months of Elon Musk having his little spitz bat, he became one of the world's richest people. Jack Ma, how's he doing right now? Number three, you look at the technology and innovation. People forget where so much innovation When the engineers of the Soviet Union, the best and brightest of the Soviet Union, when the Soviet Union collapsed, they either went to America or Israel. The the amount of technology and companies coming out of Israel, they're not feeding into Beijing or Japan or back to Russia. They're going into the US. So there you got that hole. Over 40% of all the value of the stock market is in America. So it's sucking up the value of the global economy from the valuation standpoint. You look at the bond market, same thing. It's sucking up the value. And more importantly, if you look at the GDP of the US from a debt standpoint compared to Japan or the EU or Canada, as bad as the debt in the US looks, it's much better than the other nations. Now, let's pretend... America was a company. All the companies in America are just assets within the company called the USA. And let's pretend we listed the company USA as a company in the stock market. The incredible value in IP, but also from a military standpoint, from an infrastructure standpoint, from a in-ground resources, you think about how hard it would be to conquer America from a military standpoint. It's almost perfectly designed. If God wanted to create a country that would be very difficult to conquer, it would be America from a geographical standpoint. You look at the oceans around it, you look at the Mississippi, you look at the Rocky Mountains. It is an incredibly well-situated country. And then at the end of the day, everything goes back to Pareto's law. Yes, on average, I would totally agree that on average, the Chinese school system is totally rocking the North American or even the West, but it's not about on average. It, who, you look at the Elon Musk, it's the Pareto law. The best and brightest are they going to go to India or China? Or are they going to go to America where the capital will fund these innovations and these incredible opportunities? At the end of the day, the American dream is still alive. As screwed up as America is, it's less screwed up than the rest of the world. And, and take it from a guy who spent 20 years traveling around the world, doing business around the world. America's a pretty amazing place.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. So how do investors capitalize on that? How do we position ourselves to take advantage of, of the golden age?
2: I think they already are. Look at the incredible technology companies and on the markets. I personally would avoid the meme stocks because those are trends and momentum. I I'd look at value. I would look at assets that are in the U.S. There's some incredible companies. So you want to talk about rare earths? Geez, one of the best rare earth deposits are in the US and it's a publicly listed company. We we wrote it up at 10 bucks. It's trading at, I don't know, went as high as 65 bucks. I think it's about 40 bucks now. I think it's a little bit ahead of itself right now, but it's Mountain Pass is a great deposit. So that's one way of doing it. If you want rare earth, when you look at copper, you know, there's Freeport's an amazing copper company. I, I do believe copper's trading... If you had to pick between copper and gold, copper is really getting that electrification premium to it. And China, Japan, South Korea, everyone realizes that they're not building enough copper mines and you need copper. Well, Freeport's a great company. There's tech is another good company, but gold today is cheap. And there's some great American gold companies that are all listed on the New York Stock Exchange, producers that are trading half-nav. That's Warren Buffett style of investing. You just got to do a little bit of work. And again, when I compare it to my days, when I was first starting out, there were no such thing as podcasts or no such thing as I can get all of the, with a click of the mouse, you can get all the information. It's never been easier than it is now to go through the financial reports and use Google finance or Yahoo finance. If you don't have better filters to look at some valuation metrics.
0: Yeah, I I would agree with that. So I guess, A question I have about some of the things you're talking about, one of the things that I've been interested in is some of the green energy opportunities, and particularly, I I looked hard at at lithium. And so what are your thoughts on batteries, lithium technology, and that, that kind of area?
2: Yeah, look, when the catalytic converter was a big issue in the early 2000s, when I was a young buck in the game. Platinum and palladium were interchangeable. And when the price of platinum went up too high, palladium, Ford would shift their conver- catalytic converters to palladium. I think the race for batteries, we're going to get utility scale battery storage. It, it, it's the next evolution of green energy. But I don't think the chemistry is yet there. So whether the big winner is nickel cobalt or what it is, The problem is it's very interchangeable. Lithium, there's absolutely no shortage of lithium on the planet. I wish more people would take lithium. I think the world would be a better place. But the (laughs) point I'm trying to make is, is that be careful. Is this an expiration and go back to the Mark Twain saying, uh, a miner standing beside a hole is a liar. And so many guys talk about building things from lithium world. There's three producers that produce what 85, 90% of the world's lithium and they're publicly listed companies. So you can go that route. I'm not a lithium guy. Cause I just, I, I think there's better ways to play the market, easier ways to make money. The green energy is economic it's only going to get cheaper it's only going to get better and it's going to continue to evolve and and the game changer is when you get to utility scale battery storage we're not there yet but when it does let's say within a decade or two the only source of power that could compete is existing nuclear reactors or if the small or what i call pebble bed reactors like micro nuclear reactors the one 200 megawatt blocks can be cost efficient. They're decades away from being that cheap, but green energy, I'm telling you, it's been a great place to be for myself and my subscribers. We've made a ton of money on it.
0: Yeah. I I think it's a fascinating area. And I, I, without getting into all the political part of it, it seems like that's really where the country is going. And as companies continue to embrace it and as it becomes more economically
2: viable for them, I, I can't see any reason why they wouldn't continue that. The free path. market will always make the decision at the end. So The government can push it, but if it's not economic, the people aren't going to push. It. If the innovations don't happen, the, the free market will say it didn't work. The free market is telling you that it's incredibly... Like, think about the cost of solar panels has decreased by about 90% in the last 15 years. That's incredible. And it's going to continue to decrease. You look at windmills, they're getting way more efficient. They're getting way bigger for the cost, right? So, your cost of capital for output. And what a lot of people don't realize is these polluters, you take 30 of the world's comp, so 30, one third, so 33% of all global greenhouse emissions. Are emitted by 30 companies in the world. They haven't had to pay for that pollution. When you have garbage, you have to pay to get it taken away, right? That's no different. And those companies are going to pay. So everyone who says, ah, green energy doesn't work, it's not economic, those guys are not up to pace on the actual economics. Number two, when you apply the actual cost of the full cycle economics, of the fossil fuel industry, it really starts pushing you towards the green energy sector.
0: When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to nerd wallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before nerd wallet, I pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles. I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until monarch money. Monarch money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. That's monarchmone dot beginners for your extended 30-day free trial.
1: I was just curious. So I guess that kind of fits into the reason why you're bullish on carbon credits and everything there. Can you explain that to somebody who's not familiar with them?
2: Sure. So if you take the 30 largest emitters of pollution, almost 20 of them, 21 of them are publicly listed companies, meaning they have shareholders like you and me. Those shareholders have already spoken. And 50 years ago, nobody really knew what was going on. Today, the shareholders have stated, we want a reduction and we want ESG. Now, how have they voted? Cost of capital. There are trillions of dollars in the green bond market that will only invest in projects that meet the ESG category, environmental, social, and governance, the ESG. Now, those companies are going to have to make a move in it. So let's just say of the 30 largest, 10 are state-owned. So let's just pretend those 10 just... Nah, we don't, we're not going to do anything, even though they will, but let's just pretend they don't do anything on the grant commissions. Companies like Shell and Exxon, which are on the list, they are now forced legally to reduce their carbon emissions. Now, let's just say 50% of those companies make a move to reduce their carbon emissions by 50%. So we started with 20, let's go to 10, and now only they reduce by 50%. That increases the demand for carbon credits by over 20 fold. Think about that per year. Wow. There ain't no sector that I see right now that is going to increase by even 200%, never mind 2000%. And that's just the beginning. Remember that, that, that shows one third of the market. Then you've got the other two thirds. You think about, for example, let's say you're a copper company. There isn't, so I talked about this a year ago, but quickly to explain it. When you do an MPB of a company or you want to do a cash flow model or how you calculate your nav, not a single brokerage firm, investment firm, research firm included their cost of carbon emissions in their financial model. Now, I don't know when if you had a private business and let's just say it was whatever you produce, whatever widget, You At the end of the month, you have all these odds and ends and you got to get rid of it. Wouldn't that count as a cost of your capital? Of course it does. But in the resource industry, the oil producers, the miners, the coal guys, the coal utilities, they've been getting away with this for 50 years. They're not going to get away with it anymore. So if you include the cost, if you included that cost of carbon, the greenhouse gas emissions in your financial model model, you would find that there's a totally different cash flow model than the others. Now, how can a company do? Well, the governments have already stated that there's the compliant market and then there's the voluntary market. You will see within a decade that companies are going to make a move to reduce their carbon footprint. Now, why should they do that? Because they believe they want a better future for their kids. I don't think that's going to be the reason they do it because it comes down to the balance sheet. The reason that the executives will decide to do this is because it reduces their cost of capital. For example, if you guys mentioned copper before, let's say a mid-tier copper producer is about 100 million pounds of copper. It costs you a billion dollars to build that. Interest rate for a mid-tier copper producer for a one-asset mine would be about 10%. That's a junk bond. But if they went ESG and went net zero, they could tap into that green market and they could reduce their interest rate from 10 to 5%. Now, even using $4 copper, that 100 million pound producer, they probably only make 50 million in free cash flow at the end of the year after all their costs. But we just reduced their cost of capital by 50 million in a year in interest. You just doubled your free cash flow by 100% just by doing something that makes sense. And you make the world a better place for your grandkids. So that's why you're going to see thousands of companies move this way. That adds for the demand. And, and carbon credits are essentially a Giffen good. A Giffen good means as the price goes up, the demand goes up. It, it's People don't learn this in the economics because that's not what any commodity is. It's the only commodity. Bitcoin is not a Giffen good. Gold is not a Giffen good. Oil is not a Giffen good. Carbon credits are. So
1: you're saying basically the more that this philosophy of or i guess understanding that there's a cost to carbon the more that people start to realize it then the more valuable it becomes correct it makes a lot of sense so i guess is the play then moving towards companies that are leading maybe they're ahead of the curve when it comes to being net zero or is there some other way to play it
2: they always say this is bigger than any industry and it's not me saying this this is like the world's largest commodities trading firm, for example, the, the CEO of Trafigura, which I think is the, the second largest trading arm in commodities in the world, came out and said, carbon credits are a commodity and they're going to be bigger. Uh, he said it's going to be 10 times the oil market. Just so you understand, the oil market makes up about 2.5% of the global economy. <laughs> oh my. So you want to be involved in companies that can produce carbon credits because the price is going to go up multifold.
1: Wow. So is it, are we talking like literal credits where it's you, let's say you're a company and you're able to reduce carbon emissions. So do you get like a literal unit of value that says this is two carbon credits and they're worth $20 or whatever that is? Is, is that what you mean? Or is this more of an abstract concept?
2: No, no, no. It's very advanced. So it's already 20 years old to this sector. And it's just getting the momentum now because of the technologies at the point. So for example, let's say you're a utility and you used to be a coal. You had a coal, a thousand megawatts of coal, a thousand megawatts of natural gas. And now you want to do a fuel switch. And a fuel switch means you're going from the fossil fuels to green energy. You're going to get credits for that switch. Right. Another way you can get credits is, for example, uh, blue carbon are probably going to be one of the most. Those are how do you, uh, a, uh, an eight ocean in certain areas, let's take, for example, a mangrove forest in the ocean that absorbs 10 times the carbon emissions from the atmosphere, than the same plot on land and in the forest and then you get all these net benefits for example the coral the growth of the whales the dolphins the turtles the sharks the my biodiversity you get all those net benefits and you can track that now with the science so that's why those are the most valuable credits on the planet other areas if you go for example in the reforestation and forest fire areas you can put money towards technologies that not just reforest, but you can track the growth of you know, the caribou and prevent forest fires because the technology, this is now an asset, not just a park. Some idiot throws a cigarette or lights a fire and forgets to put it out. Now it's an asset and using technology with the satellites, you can actually track, wait a second, there's a fire there. Let's get on that right away. The government doesn't have that. So these are all value adds To the carbon market, it's going to help the the marine biodiversity, the terrestrial biodiversity, and it's going to rather than going and building a giant open pit with a tailings pond on top of the hill of a village, you're going and investing in the environment to absorb the greenhouse gas emissions. And then you get third-party certified by someone like Vera or the gold standard. Let's think of it as if you're a company, you go to an accountant like Ernst & Young or PwC to certify your audited financial statements. You get audited on your project. And then this third-party recognized firm says, you have a million credits a year for you know 20 years, but we'll come back next year to make sure that the credits are still there. There's an actual science to this. And then they certify those credits. They go onto an exchange and someone like Exxon or Shell or Apple, Google, they'll buy those credits. And it's happening right now around the look. If I was, if let's just say I had a little brother starting out in the business and and he was a go-getter, or if I was me and I could tell me today what industry to go to, I would not even hesitate, become obsessed with this sector and you will become worth hundreds of millions of dollars. I think... The first trillionaire in the world is the guy that figures out this problem. Or a girl. And it's going to happen in America.
1: How would you look up, let's say I want to see how many carbon credits Target bought last year? Is that public information? Is that something we oh yeah? Oh, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. That's totally. There's exchanges. That's all public information. So last year there was 220 million carbon credits created that were certified in the voluntary market. To put that into perspective. If just Exxon bought enough credits for them to go net zero, they would have to buy all of those credits last year and then another 200 million credits to cover their S3. That's the scope three. If they wanted to just cover their scope one, they'd probably buy up themselves two-thirds of the voluntary market of all credits produced last year. Add in Shell scope one that's just direct emissions involved in their direct production scope just shell and Exxon, two of the biggest oil producers in the world would buy up every single carbon credit produced last year and they'd still be short to cover their scope ones that's two companies guys wow that's crazy that's crazy
0: so does that mean that oil companies are screwed
2: (laughs) no it means that there's a new cost that you have to calculate into their production. Oil's not going anywhere, but the game is changing in real time. And, and the people who are fighting this are dinosaurs. They're walking zombies, and they just don't know it. They're infected with stupidity. So you have to decide how you're going to play this.
0: So how does a retail investor take advantage of this?
2: By buying the companies that are buying those credits? No, you want to be involved in the companies that produce these credits that other okay. guys have to pay for it at a premium.
1: okay. Okay. Of course, there's going to be all the fallout, all the demand that's driven from the value chain that flows down from all of those producers as well. For example,
2: imagine a world where, imagine if Amazon allowed you to, you have your profile, here's my address, here's my credit card number. Oh, and by the way, I want to buy net zero goods or as close to net zero as possible. Now you're not just doing price comparison, you're doing global comparisons because that's going to change the game for production between America and China. I get into the book about cost of capital. America has that now. America used to have expensive electricity. Now, for example, Texas is the Saudi Arabia of wind energy. A lot of people are surprised to hear that. Electricity in Texas is about $0.02 per kilowatt hour so you look at that and now you have the manufacturing and the robotics america can compete with china pari parsu on the goods made but here's the thing a lot of the projects in china companies are government subsidy and cheap labor and all that the game is changing now if you just put the cost of pollution onto those goods there ain't no way China can compete. And that's a big part of what I get into at the end of the book of the future, or the next industrial revolution. And I think most people, who's the number one customer of China? America, who's the number two? The European Union. And if all these Amazons, and, and imagine going, when you buy a bag of chips from the grocery store, it says there's this much fat. And you're like, ah, there's this much calories. And you at least feel guilty Eating that bag of chips, you're going, oh man, I shouldn't have done that. I know at least how much sugar I'm having, blah, blah, blah. Now imagine if they start the technology's there, that every product sold on Amazon, they know exactly how many tons of carbon is associated to every little gadget that they sell. Is it a coincidence that America's richest families, like the Waltons and Jeff Bezos? are also the world's largest facilitators of pollution on the planet. And they haven't paid for any of that. You don't need to be a drug dealer that consumes the drugs to go to jail. The fact that you're dealing drugs gets you to jail. And now they're going to have to pay for that. And I'm talking about things that are going to happen, but these are second order effects. That's going to have the carbon credits are going to have a bigger geopolitical effect than fracking did Globally, and think about what that did to the world., you know, the Arab Spring happened because of fracking. all sorts of things changed yeah
0: that's a, that's an interesting idea. I, why do you think pe- more people are not ringing the bell?
2: Because most of the people in the sector were altruists who were doing it for the good of the f- world, and they didn't have, let's say the financial background that I did, and I was lucky enough to be one of the largest financiers in green energy. And in 2015, I try to bring a, as you read in the appendix, I bring up the green barrels of oil and I talk about all these deals I've done. And there just was no market. For example, uh, I talk about in the book how Canada's largest green energy company, I was the second largest shareholder. And I went to one of the large, probably the largest oil company at the time, they could have bought that green energy company for less than 10% of their market cap. They didn't even have to get a shareholder vote for it. And I said, you guys are crazy for not doing this look at my math and they said, yeah, you're a fancy mathematician. We get it, but yeah, we don't really believe in green energy. A bunch of old white dudes that were stuck to doing business the way they did in the 1950s. And I said, you guys are idiots. You can get green barrels of oil, just like I talk about in the book. Remember there used to be barrels and then barrels of oil equivalent when they turned natural gas into barrels of oil equivalent. What the hell is the difference with megawatts? You can turn that into a green barrel of oil. I call it a GBO, G-B-O-E. And fast forward six years, the market cap of that green energy company is now bigger than the oil company. (laughs) So the cost of the capital is flipped the other way. And now I'm telling these green energy companies, you should buy out these oil companies because rather than reinvesting in the oil patch, which is called the recycle ratio, you can take every barrel of oil and commit to producing a Jibo So every barrel of oil produced, we are going to fund a boat. And the green energy companies will come in. The green bonds will will find that their cost of capital is going to be one-tenth of the oil patch. So what can the oil producers do to combat that? They know they screwed up. They know they missed the boat. Go to any oil company. Go to their PowerPoint. Today's easier than ever. Go Google BP or Exxon. What are the first five pages? Environmental, social, governance. And they know the only way they can catch up is by reducing their carbon footprint. It's either CCS, carbon capture, or sequestration, or offset. Fund someone else sucking out the carbon out of the atmosphere so you can pump it in. And that's only going to get more expensive, but it'll, it'll fast track. You put a price on pollution, it'll fast track the development of going green.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with that. And like you said earlier, the government can talk about doing this, but the markets will certainly accelerate all of this. Correct.
1: That was really good. I, I didn't know about the green bond market and you know how that is affecting cost of capital. That's huge. Green
2: I mean, bond just, market in the last eight years has increased by 26-fold. It's the largest growth of any bond uh, market in the world. Wow. Trillions and trillions of dollars on the sidelines. One of the largest holdings in the ESG ETF is Home Depot. Have you gone into Home Depot? Where are most of the goods made? China. Do you think that carbon is offset? Hell no. Like it's almost ironic that Home Depot is in an ESG ETF, but that just shows you how much money is on the table. So it's not just about the corporation being net zero, the products they facilitate have to become net zero.
1: Yeah, it's, it's super fascinating. It's a really exciting thing. And I love this concept that you're very bullish on America. And I recommend everybody read your book, Rise of America. I found it really fascinating. I think you mentioned in the book how it, it you didn't consider certain chapters to be easy beach reading, but I flew through those chapters on the beach. And so I, I challenge you on that one point there. But I think people should definitely check it out. A lot of great stuff about green energy, some of the swap stuff with what's going on with the macro developments between the big countries and you get some good economics lessons too. I think there's something in there for everybody. So go check them out. Maren, thanks so much for your time. Where else can people learn more about you if they're interested?
2: Yeah, I write a weekly free missive and you can also go to our YouTube channel. Just publish my research for free so people can see like the carbon credits. I've been writing about this for over a year now, talking about what is MMT, what is FMC. People get intimidated by these terms Uh, ask just economic economists putting fancy stuff. So I I like to break stuff down that you can talk about over a beer. And and generally speaking, if you can't simplify an idea to the point that everyone at the table can understand, there's either something really wrong with the concept or you don't understand it enough. So that's my style of doing things. I I try to avoid big fancy words to sound smart and cover up my insecurities. it's not that complicated. You do have to spend time and research it, but it's like a gym. You're not going to get fit and lose weight unless you show up and work out. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Very true.
0: All right, Maren, thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate you coming and talking to us and you have a good rest of your day. All
2: right, guys, take care. All the best. Stay well. All right, you
0: too. Thank you. All right. All right, bye-bye.
1: We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day.